everybody. I'm Katie Knight and welcome back to my podcast, Can You Put Me On Guest List? Now, today's episode is a really great example of why I started this podcast. The whole idea behind the show was for me to chat with different people from the dance music industry and find out a little bit more about what their job actually consists of, how they got to where they are today and to share any fun stories that they've made along the way. So today my guest is Mark Lawrence and as most of you will already know, Mark has done so much in the industry including 10 years at PRS and also being the CEO of the Association for Electronic Music. Mark is now the director of Black Rock Publishing, as well as Centric Electronic, working with some of the most exciting talent in the industry, both upcoming talent as well as established artists. Now, I really didn't know hardly anything about publishing, so I found this chat so, so interesting, so insightful, and I really did learn so much. So we chat about how publishing actually works, how a publishing deal comes about, and how the last year has affected the world of publishing. Mark was so interesting to talk to. He's so passionate about what he does. And I really hope that you guys enjoy this podcast as much as I did recording it. So if you know of anybody that you think this could be really interesting for then please remember to share this podcast with them and also subscribe to the show as each week i upload a new episode thank you so so much as always for listening and i hope that you enjoy and learn something from this next show with mark lawrence how is everything are you okay yeah we're all right you know we're we're in mallorca as you know so we've you know, we've been relatively unscathed by all things COVID this year, apart from the initial heavy lockdown. And we're in one of those little mini circuit breakers at the moment. But, mm. um, you know, we've got the blessing of sunshine and a relatively That's healthy it. island. So I just kind of look outside and go, thank God for that. But, I know. That's it. That's literally what I say every day. You know what? It could be worse. We could be in the rain. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Who <laughs> north? Yeah, yeah. Every 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 call back to the UK or Germany or beyond is just sort of met with somebody sort of going, and it's it's yes. awful. I feel so sorry for everybody because it's like no schools open, nowhere to go. There's snow, there's rain. So I think I, I do genuinely worry about how people feel this time round. I think I think the impact of whichever lockdown number they're on, three or four now, is is so much more damaging all round than anything that happened last year where it was sort of fresh and new and commitments Absolutely. to learn languages and do wonderful things were taking place and now it's just <laughs> vodka and iPads. And, <laughs> Literally, yeah. so true. How long have you lived in Mallorca for? Uh, heading towards five years. So oh. that's come around really quick and kind of realised that it's not a short a short period of time. It's actually quite significant. So, um, yeah. So lovely over there. I haven't, well, I haven't been for a, for a while now, but so beautiful. There was a moment when... Um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were up north on the island on a beach and it was in the little nook we were in. It was very tranquil with no wind and it was about 20 degrees and you looked the other way down the spine of the island, down the mountains, and there's snow on the top of the islands and then clouds on this side and, and 
clear skies on that side and it was it was incredible it was like looking at four continents in one it was amazing wow that's incredible that's so lovely well listen thank you so much for doing this with me and for coming on the podcast absolute pleasure um, I'm be really looking forward to chatting with you. And I normally start this show just by talking a little bit about, you know, your beginnings. Um, you've obviously done a lot in the industry. So I wanted to know what your first steps were and how it all began for you. How, how did you start out in the music industry? Wonderfully unconventional route. So normally everybody that I kind of meet and work with left school, did some DJing, worked in a label, worked their way up, you know, kind of then went into the next size company and then the next size and then just kept going. And I completely the opposite unconventional route. So for my sins, I was 16 in 1989. So a lot of my youth was misspent, kind of M25 and dance platforms and basements. And, um, somehow managed to make my way through through college and and get out the other side which still surprises me and went into banking and I'm not really sure how or why that happened but just sort of fell into it through a sense of expectation I guess and did that for 10 years and just kind of had the epiphany that I was working in a sector where the business didn't have any positive views about the future its staff or any real values at all and music was kind of in my heart so I um I jumped ship for PRS, which was an odd moment because that was, I opened the the Times on Sunday, I think, and saw an advert and I knew each individual word, but none of the sentences made sense. It was just all about rights and audio products and this, I haven't got a clue, but it sounds like the music industry, so let's go. And I was, I was fortunate enough that Sharon Dean, who was my boss and recruited me, had previously worked at Visa before she went to PRS, so she kind of wanted not another one from the music industry, not another lawyer, not and kind of went, let's let's take a punt on Mark, which I'm forever thankful for. So I did ten years at, at PRS, which I guess is would consider itself in the music industry, but now where I am, I kind of realise it's it's not really at the centre; it's on the side, um, and and however valuable, it's not it's not in the middle of the music industry. So I kind of I left there after ten years and did two things simultaneously. Um, went to lead the Association for Electronic Music and set up Black Rock Publishing. And then those kind of took their, their two natural and different courses from there. So I guess I went fan to random to in. I was just going to say, but you were obviously like a music fan before, before whilst you were at the bank, for us to say. I was, yeah. I was still um, juggling... Uh, running Abbey National branches in southwest London and Thursday to Sunday partying. So I, I think I just about got away with that for far too wow. long. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So right now, obviously, is your main focus uh, BlackRock Publishing? Yeah, so BlackRock was, was... We were independent and, and kind of it was born um, along with Steve... Um, Matt from Brighton um, Rhythm Masters and you know one of the best producers I think in the world at his craft and it ran alongside Black Rock Records and then the publishing company really took a life of its own and began working with Sneak and Felix the Housecat and Harry Romero and, and it really it set itself out to offer everybody that it worked with the same deal big or small young or old and it grew quickly enough for uh, us to need an admin partner and Centric, so Chris at Centric, who'd always been a good friend from my time at PRS, I phoned him and said, look, we, we need we need power, have you got it? I said, yeah, no problem, and clicked it together. And 
we, we carried on growing and, uh, and then at, in about 2017 Chris came out here to see me and said you know let's um, let's buy you into Centric make you the electronic music division power up Black Rock as like the concierge part of, of Centric and then create an, an overall division called Centric Electronic that allows us to do other things and, and that's what we did so um, you know the Chris coming in was was a powerful step change in the business. It kind of allowed us to pursue the publishing side. It allowed Steve to to pursue his production side, and here we are. Mm-hmm. So, what's the actual difference between Black Rock Publishing and Centric Electronic? So, Centric Electronic is the division, um, and it's also the online offering. So, you probably don't see so much of the internal bit, which is the electronic music division. You see more of the external, which is Centric Electronic, which you log into, set up your account, manage everything online. It's a 28-day rolling deal where you keep the rights. Then BlackRock is a much more involved, um, as we call it, kind of concierge service with lots of client management and creative support. And so that's how it works. That's where the split is. One is is light touch online and one is heavy touch people all the way. So for, for those people that don't actually know um, what publishing is or how publishing works, can you explain? <laughs> It's like the million dollar question, isn't it? And it's taken me 20 years to get there. So how long have you got? I'm um, going to be honest. Like, even when I was preparing for this interview, I was like, I don't whoa. fully understand anyway. Yeah. So this is going to be my question. The, the, the problem is, is that electronic music rips up a lot of the rules or at least confuses the rules of what publishing was. So I, I find the best way to understand publishing and songwriting and artists and recordings is to go back in time to where it first came from and where it first makes sense to kind of, for anyone to understand. So if you look at, and this is such a crude analogy and anyone with any expertise will now be steadily getting their pen ready to criticize everything I'm about to say and and remind (laughs) me where I've got it wrong. But in the crudest, simplest terms, if you go back a long way into the 60s, you've got the Beatles. And if we assume that John Lennon and Paul McCartney wrote all of the songs, and the point that they write the songs, they've not been recorded. The Beatles haven't come into the recording studio. Nothing's happened apart from John and Paul noodling about and making a track or actually a song at that point. Let's get that technically correct. And it doesn't exist apart from being a song. And songs can be recorded by anybody. They can be covered by anybody. They have their own rights and publishers look after them. Music publishers look after them. So the point a song is finished, it's therefore a copyright. And there are rights established against that copyright that have money next to them. So Paul, uh, John Lennon and Paul McCartney write a song, give it to their publisher, publisher then represents it, and it sits there in, in the vaults of that publisher until something happens to it. And what happens in the case of um, Lennon and McCartney is they actually take it next door and two other people come in the room and the Beatles record it, and it then exists as a recording made by artists which can get put on a label and sold and listen to so in every recording is this song this mythical thing called a song which which in the old days was made first yeah but of course now in electronic music it's a few people often one person sat sat at a laptop doing all of it at the same time which is why it completely confuses the model because anybody that is a producer is a songwriter at the same time and so they need a publishing deal and a label deal so why that's really important because I know it's it's techie is that a song earns money by being performed in public or being copied. And that's where the money comes from. So when a song, which sits inside one of those recordings that someone made, be it, be it the original artist or a cover, is 
copied for CD or copied for vinyl or in a download or in a stream, there's a mechanical royalty that's generated, the mythical mechanical royalty. And it's a publisher's job to make sure that all of those royalties come back to the person who wrote the song or people that wrote the song. If you can hear the song, then there's a performing royalty. So that's on TV, on radio, in a gig, in a club, part of a stream. So the kind of, if it's audible, then the performing royalty, the performance of that song is taking place and that's where those royalties come from. So, you know, we, we collect direct in 120 different territories around the world and there are probably about 246 different sources of revenue just for a song. Whereas a, a record label is much simpler because it's dealing with this recording, which is the thing you and I hear and assume is, yeah. is the everything, right? When you press play, you're listening to the recording. The song is nestling underneath it. And that recording is basically sales, is basically played on radio, sold, streamed. There's, you know, on TV. There's a lot, it's a lot simpler in terms of where the money comes from. And then that all goes back to the label and it all goes to the recording artist. So it's a slightly simpler world than this incredibly complicated world of, of rights management and mechanical rights and performing rights. So that's about as simple as I can make it. I could try and wow. make it simpler, but, you know, I'd be into such... Such stern analogy hell that we'd be here for the rest of the, of the call, I suspect. Sorry, how many places did you say that you have to... That's 126? We're in 120 territories that we collect direct, yeah. So because you've got all the different TV stations and all the different radio stations and all the different venues and all the different parts of the world and all the different ways to collect it. And then you've got these big global routes of YouTube and Apple and Spotify, the kind of behemoths of you know, global sales and streams that you have to collect in different ways with trillions of lines of data. So it's it's a it's a beast to stay it's on top massive. of rights now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that that's play, plays in the high street, you know, all those things. Every time you hear music, essentially there's an opportunity to to license and collect a royalty through a performing right organization that's in that country or direct. So there's there's a lots How? of places. How would you know if uh, if a, a, a track or a song has been played in like a shop, for, like Top Shop, for example? How, how do you how do you know? <laughs> I guess there's there's a lot of trust and a lot of policing in the industry. So if you take if you take um, a retail environment such as a chain of shops or a single shop, then they will normally purchase or license music from a, from some kind of supplier of music to retail shops and they'll say right here's this month's cds often it's still cds or here's this month this month's downloads would you like to use any of this selection and then it's and then it's actually the shop has to pay a license fee to be able to have music played and the data of what's in this month's playlist comes from that company that provided the music and they report it to a local pro and then it's all matched up and sent to us Wow. And then people will drop in and go, have you got a license? We seem to be playing music. And that's where the kind of the music police tag used to come in, which is people being tapped up for their PRS license. Ah, wow. Well, I didn't know any of that, so I've just... <laughs> there we go. Mark's so monthly ob- teaching. Yeah. <laughs> Do you always have to give the same answer when people, somebody asks? No, no, there's always, there's always a fabulously... I know, I'm trying not to bore everybody with an earshot of trotting out the same metaphors, to be honest, and the same <laughs> stories. But you know, it, it is mind-boggling, because every country's got different rules, and every, every route is different. And um, it's a full-time job in the company, just staying on top of 
policies and laws and what changes and what deals have been done and different publishers operate different ways. It's 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 hugely complex and possibly unnecessarily complex versus the simplicity of just pressing play. But it was designed for a different world of wax cylinders and orchestras and sheet music and everyone's been trying to translate it into digital ever since. Wow. So obviously things are so much more complicated than they probably used to be, as you were saying, like back in the 60s. But how have things changed over the last year with COVID? Has has it affected it a lot with, you know, obviously a lot more streaming and not really um, no events happening? How has that been? There's loads of different things that change and some things haven't changed at all. So one of the other types of rights without, without getting too rabbit hole about it is neighbouring rights which is if you can hear the recording in public and that it comes from a lot less sources it comes from live radio a bit of TV and from the high street so anytime the high street is shut and if gigs are shut and the live sector is shut then that revenue falls pretty quickly because that's that's literally the only places it goes so neighbouring rights is a, is a revenue stream that will be hit much harder than performing in mechanical rights because they go back in terms of collections up to six years so you it's like seeing starlight you know you, you the thing that you see is actually a lot older so the statement that you get as a, as a writer or an artist or producer often contains royalties that go years back because all the different parts of the world are all paying at different times so you've got this natural insulation that in the year where you're in lockdown and live, the live sector is closed publishing royalties are flowing from the year before and the year before and the year before so the more efficient we we get, the more we've been able to sort of keep that away. And any dips that we've had in high street and live, we've been able to make up for with more direct collections from different parts of the world. So we did a direct deal with Beatport as the only publisher that licenses them at the tail end of last year, which means that we're collecting directly from the store. Ah. And that's 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 lifted Light Flight royalties about four times. So if you were previously getting £100 in your Beatport distribution, you would now be getting 400 for your publishing royalties. So we've we've been making every effort to kind of keep away the impact of COVID with the people that we represent through efficiency and deal-making and just... Know, being as accurate as we can be but but what has definitely changed in answer to your question this year has been how producers have made music right. um i think most people would recognize that up until then there was just a, a, a an ever present kind of hamster wheel effect of must release every two or four weeks must be on those labels because if I'm not releasing I'm not visible and not on those labels then I'm not going to get the gig or I'm not going to get the feel one and if I'm not doing that then I'm you know then I'm not busy then I'm not a success and if I'm not gigging then people will stop in, you know in, inviting me and booking me and and I think to a greater or lesser extent that was sort of homogenizing music around the beatport genres a little bit and we were sort of seeing these sort of main pillars of genres and that's where everyone was naturally falling into to rise up those charts. Mm-hmm. What we've seen in 2020 is producers leaning back a little bit and taking a lot longer to finish tracks and letting them breathe and Matador making an album with songs and with breaks in and Mark Knight going, actually, no, I want to make real songs and positive songs and happy songs. And so lots of different producers are doing lots of different things. There's lots of albums that have been made. There's lots yeah. of crossover music or breakbeat or 
just everyone going back a little bit to making the music that's in them rather than what needs to go on to X, Y or Z label because there's, there's, you know, there's no dance floor audience, which is obviously a crying shame, but you're, you're making it for a different audience. You're making music for Spotify, radio, cars, gyms, walks, you know, whatever's open and wherever people can be. So it's, and our, our creative team, the work that Chino's been doing in creative has, has gone through the roof. We've gone, we're up to, I think, 108 active collaborations now between singer-songwriters and producers. Wow. And do you think then that this will be something that will will stick now? Do you think that producers will like take their time in making music? Or do you think once things normalise whenever they do, do you think it'll kind of go back into what it was before? I think there's, there's two or three forces at play at the same time. So from a dance floor perspective, I think the dance floor is going to take its time if it ever goes fully back, but it's going to be small dance floors or open-air dance floors or table-based dance floors or you know, COVID-safe dance floors first, you know, Blue, yeah. Blue Marlin before, before you know, amnesia kind of step by step, you know. So, yeah. so the music will fit the environment. And so naturally, you're probably going to have um, more of a, a legacy of the creativity of lockdown being played out before you go back to what was pre-lockdown in terms of, you know, dark breeding yeah. techno and, and, and tech house, etc. So I think naturally you're going to have a lot lighter varied music initially but what you've also got is advertisers and brands and films and tv have been increasingly using electronic music in what we call sync where you synchronize the music to the visuals and so it you know it's, i call it the meerkat effect because of who i am and what i used to listen to when i was 16 to 20 i'm right bang in the middle of what advertisers want to advertise to so i'll be listening to the radio or tv and and a house track will come on from an advert, and I'm like a meerkat. Oh, that must be because my, my I'm literally the epicenter of their buying target. So, so you've got a lot of dance music being used in unfamiliar places now, in car adverts and burger adverts and food delivery companies, and so that's 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 going to continue the use creatively of more accessible electronic music. I think for a good five years until we're no longer the people that companies want to sell to, and. You know, and I've I've kind of got my walking stick out. So, <laughs> so those 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 are like the competing forces, right? There's the there's the return of the dance floor, and there's there's the the, the buying public and the and the pound euro and dollar that they're after. So, mm. what makes you want to work with an artist? What are the qualities that really get your attention? We're we're a very I guess we're a very fortunate business because we work with a lot of third parties like Beatport where mm -hmm. they they will refer opportunities to us and Electric Beatha work with us and we have some amazing partners like with Neil and, and everybody else there and, and so we have a lot of business that's referred to us and a lot of existing clients will recommend us and so our our kind of we don't sell per se but what I will do and what we do within the team is we will seek out emerging talent as early as we can when we see something amazing happen. So my, my Thursday night is normally taken up listening to all the new music for that week. And within that, I will find collaborators or singers and songwriters and top liners, or we'll go through the new releases on labels that we work with because we're mobily publishing and tour room publishing and, 
um, and so we've got a lot of partners. So I'll be introduced to a lot of music from a lot of different sources. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that, there'll naturally be a discovery process. And I guess the, the discovery process f- for me when I'm finding new talent is, is, is it brilliant? Not is it, you know, top okay. of Beatport. Yeah. It's, it's, is it brilliant? Um, and that, that brilliance could be described in so many different ways. You know, is it, is it something I can imagine us working for Sync? Can I, can I imagine where they could be in five years' time? Have they got something so unique that I'm going to take a bet on them? But also they need to be, I think artists need to be, um, from an A&R perspective on publishing, certainly, I think, how do you describe it? I guess um, themselves and certain of who they are and authentic and with with integrity as creators because we're, we're looking at things from a publishing perspective. So I might find a voice, for instance, on the singer songwriter side on a track that's relatively unsuccessful that comes across this guy, I can just imagine who they can work with. Let's bring them in. Let's put them on a, on a short-term contract so both sides can try before they buy and then match them up on one of our online writer camps with a set of producers and see what happens next and allow those crazy unintended consequences to happen. Wow. And, and in some cases, when we bring in singer-songwriter talent like that to work with producers, a track can get finished come in and go straight back out for a sync brief before it's even gone near a record label because the creative process is is finding its feet before the label can get involved. So it can be hugely rewarding when you you match make two people that never met before and the outcome yeah. is some kind of fusion, you know, Absolutely. hip-hop, techno track, which was, I think, the last one was, which we then pitched straight out for an advert. Oh, wow. Can you talk about any of, like, the projects that you're working on at the moment or... Any artists or anything? That's all incredibly on? secret. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, no, not at all. Like, so, we, I mean, we are. We've, we've, I think the thing, I'm, one of the projects I'm finding most rewarding is working with Matt Adore and his album project because, because, it's a, because we've worked together and known each other for a long time. And I think, you know, Gavin has, has is, is seen and has a particular role within a kind of melodic house and techno and, and techno world and has come through from the kind of, the minus team and working with Rich into an artist in his own right with a brand in his own right, but an incredibly accomplished producer, but hasn't really ever turned himself to song-based releases. It's always been, you know, the, the, the track every or EP every couple of months. And with all of the time that he's had and being based with Nick in Ireland, he's been able to you know, have the long walks and stare out at the sea and spend time with dog and just be motivated in a different way. And seeing him move from hooks on a track, vocal hooks on a track to full songs and working with songwriters and then seeing what that inspires him to do next, that's on a creative side, that's kind of real, real publishing because you're immersing yourself in the emotion of the project and what it's trying to do without sounding too pretentious. Mm. But at the same time, then we've got writer camps that take place where a producer comes in with five or six sketches and, and works with, this is all online, we'll work with maybe eight or ten of our singer-songwriter talent. And then some of those people have never worked in that environment before. A lot of electronic music producers are used to working with samples, clear, cleared or otherwise, or to go to a sample pack. And now songwriters are available to them writing full songs. And so I think that's been... All of those have been some of the most enjoyable moments of, of the last 12 months, which is just unleashing creativity when people most, most need that, rather than just sort of chasing, chasing the chart position. 
Mm, absolutely. Um, you said before that Thursdays is your day where you, you listen, to, listen to new music. I'm sure Thursday yeah. nights are real fun in your house. Uh, <laughs> Got um, the wine on Spotify. Yeah. Is there any artist that you have discovered lately that you're really enjoying? There are, but they're probably not... Um, not necessarily the ones that everybody's going to go, oh, well, yeah, I know them, but I, there are definitely people that we pick up along the way and I go there for, like, DJ counselling, I've been around a while, um, really interesting. I'm always, Raxon, who's also been around a while, is 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 a favourite in terms of what he produces. I've just been kind of rediscovering Dateless recently, who are very good. So there's, there's a whole blend, um, I'm finding Molly Collins and K-Motions and Sammy Vergy, who are more on the kind of drum and bass side, really interesting. Um, so there's lots. And also more kind of interesting down-tempo, like Glue 70 is worth discuss, discovering, and Zula. So there's, there's lots. I kind of... It's really hard for me to pigeonhole because it, every day is like a different flavor for me so I kind of I've deliberately set up playlists on different genres that I'll share throughout the week of people we work with so it's not just so Wednesday's drum and bass day and <laughs> Sunday's slow down and Saturday's song bass just so that we can yeah. we can kind of spread the love around but you know and I've got some definitely some mainstays of my personal taste in in the gang so Rodriguez Junior is probably whenever every at the end of every year when Spotify tells me who I love it always tells me Rodriguez Junior is who I've loved the most I'm like yep again, <laughs> again absolutely we well done so that's yeah yeah. Oh. You also mentioned that sometimes like, you could even be listening to a track and might not be a, a very good track, but then you think that the, the vocals on, on this track are amazing, I could be used for something else. Could, for, for example, if, for example, you heard, you know, um, a, a, an amazing vocalist, say, on a drum, a drum bass track, um, do you, could you use that vocalist and then take her to another genre? Or do you always kind of keep the vocalists in the same genre, genre that they're in? We, we like to work with everyone on the basis of what they want and then maybe tease them a little bit into out of their comfort zone. So, And often it's you'll find that a lot of singer-songwriters prefer to mix it up and not be pigeonholed too much because um, a lot of the time the song started first before the track came along because right. most singer-songwriters will spend their day being inspired by events around them and writing as if it was poetry and then to find a home for what that was and then change it accordingly. So, you know, we've I've recently reached out to one of the... to a featured artist on one of Seb Zito's tracks, just how I love your vocal performance. It was really interesting. It was really different. And it turns out what she really wanted to do... Not what she really wanted to do. She wanted to work on that track. But what she wants to do moving forward is to work on some drum and bass tracks. And it's like, well, that's great. We've got a drum and bass writer camp in two weeks. Let's go. So you tend to find that we're really enabling and connecting people to achieve what they wanted in the first place rather than finding that we've got to force people too yeah. far away from that what are your writer camps they're a bit obviously they they have to be they're a bit different to the old way of doing things where you would have maybe two days in one studio with a number of producers and a number of singer-songwriters and some musicians and kind of a whip being politely cracked to make sure you finish some tracks by the end and what we do is a much longer process where we put a publisher in the center mm -hmm. and then 
attach writers around them to then come to an epicenter day where everything is reviewed together. And um, that's been really interesting because it's, it's putting one producer in the center of a process so that at the end they get to work with as many singer-songwriters as they want and really mould it together. And because it's not focused into a couple of days, it's more of a, a kind of a development programme, yeah. then tra- tracks might get pulled away from the project or songs that were submitted have a new track written for them or two songwriters will get together and go away and, and work together after they've heard each other's contribution. So it becomes a lot longer term. And it also allows introverted writers to get more of a centre stage because in a live environment, extroverts can be quite dominant in the creative process and introverts might sit in a corner. And if you give everyone time and space to do it their way, then they contribute more. So um, that's, that's, it's been really interesting to watch very different personalities contribute equally as songwriters by giving everyone more time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what are the best ways for an artist to secure a publishing deal? I think it's, it's very different now than it used to be with the, the advent of services like Centric and Centric Electronic where anyone can go online, set up an account in minutes, register their songs almost as quickly and then those, those songs are shot off to 120 territories to start collecting from all sorts of sources. So in a sense, anyone can get a publishing deal now in the same way that almost anyone can set up a record label now. It's, it's never been easier to set up a record label or get a publishing deal. It's just never been harder to make money out of them. So I think the... So it, it, I guess it's defined publishing deal. We've got everything from 28 days, manage yourself online through to exclusive songwriting agreements... More, more traditional publishing with an advance and a term and full client management and creative services, which is much more traditional. Mm. And I think, you know, to get those, you, that kind of deal, you obviously have to have a degree of gravitas and, and critical, um, musical and commercial success already under your belt because the publisher at that point is taking a financial risk in backing you for royalties you're going to earn in the future. But we map a, we map a type of deal for everybody, everything from start now 28 days all the way through to a 12-month creative deal through to a full-on advance and um, full-service deal. So is it always you that goes out and finds um, the, the artist or the talent that you want to work with, or can it work the other way around as well, where talent's just coming up at your door? Yeah, it comes to us. I would say, um, about the screen. I would say, ninety. I don't know. I don't want to put a figure on it because it kind of it's quite a it's quite a fluid process because the like people tend to refer across to me. I will quite often be talking to someone and say, oh, "You must talk to someone else," or I'll say, "Do you know them?" And so there's a lot of fluidity around yeah. publishing. But I think how we're set up now is that thankfully it's not all me. And so we, we have a lot of a and uh, through the wider centric electronic team that are looking at young and emerging talent um, and also older and successful talent that may be unpublished. The great thing about electronic music is it's, there's so much publishing available that you, this isn't about nicking off people's toes and nicking off people's current books. This is about finding emerging talent that's not currently published so i would say 90 percent probably comes to us through third parties and referrals and, and existing writers and then there's probably the remainder where we'll hear see or find someone and go you i want to work with you 
But I, honestly, I tend to find if you go out cold to sell to someone, that's much harder than it is to have someone kind of come in warm, as it were. And I'd yeah. much prefer to have positive referrals in than spend my time kind of cold, cold selling out. Yeah, of course. You know, especially if it comes from somebody that you often work with, it always kind of makes, makes more sense, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. What advice would you give aspiring artists? I'm not sure if I ever review this answer. Um, I'm not <laughs> sure if it's ever necessarily right. I'm not sure I've ever even been challenged on it. But I think it, it's probably rules for life, not just aspiring artists. Because yeah. I think, you know, stay true, be yourself, have a plan but also build a great team around you. And I don't mean at that stage necessarily a great team that you pay for. It could be a team of friends, family, peer artists or writers. You know, find people in the industry you can trust and bounce off them. In the same way that a producer or an artist is going to send music out for feedback, go, what do you think of this? You know, and get some opinion. I think your career is the same. You find, find a mentor, find a confidant. It, you know, it's, if you think it's embarrassing to ask for advice, it's probably even more embarrassing to realise you've signed your life away to a terrible contract that you can't get out of. So I think I'd rather feel sheepish asking for help than feel sheepish admitting the mistake that I made years later and how much it might have cost me. So that, that's certainly how I think, is artistically be yourself and commercially seek support. That was a really great answer. Um, what have been some of your favourite jobs or projects that you've worked on in your career so far? If you could choose like two or three. <laughs> I mean, definitely, I guess reversing backwards in time, um, the current creative push we've got is hugely satisfying because it means that we're always listening to amazing new music. And a lot of it you just can't see coming because it's not following traditional paths. Mm. So for every hard day of administration and negotiation to have a SoundCloud link dropped into your inbox and they're going, listen to this. And you're like, we made, you know, we made this, but we enabled this. Look at what so-and-so and so-and-so have done today. It's just, it makes everything worth it. Um, from a Sorry, I was just going to say, it must on. be such a great feeling because uh, I was thinking this as you were saying it before as well about when you put two people together and the, uh, you know, this am amazing track comes out of it. It must be like just the best feeling ever once you've heard like the final product. Oh, I think so because it's very easy in anything to do with rights and data and numbers to, to, for, to let that take over and for that to be what it is and to forget that what you're doing is for human beings that want to create amazing music that inspires people to dance or to change their lives or to smile or to whatever they want to do. It's supposed to make something happen next. Yeah. So when you, when you hear something that's come out from such a true, true kind of state of, of a collaboration and it is, is inspiring and it does I say it's rewarding. It's not just numbers then and targets. So that's, that's how I feel. That's what the, the transformation of the last 12 months, which you know, we, we were aiming to do, but in a way it's been COVID accelerated. The benefit for us has been this sort of huge creative push yeah. um, through the time everyone's got. And then I guess the, the coming of age of Black Rock when it, when it became part of Century, it was a huge moment for me. It was a validation of the business and it gave us a sort of strong footing and confidence to push on. And I think on a very human level, an AFEM-related activity really, which is when I was heading it up, the, the early 
campaign that we led on was the a lot of the, the work we did on drug policy globally. Mm. So we did a panel with B Traits at IMS, which was quite a poignant one because, as you know from IMS, those the panels are recorded live and tweeted live and reported live. So you're, you're as a moderator, you're always watching this this activity happening, and um, and I remember as we were we were doing this panel and I kind of quoted, we're not pro-drugs, we're anti-death. And it just went, you could watch it retweeting real time across all, all the monitors. And you go, wow, we just triggered something because we were talking about you know, the need for drug education and the need for testing. And yeah. lots of people have been very delicate about it. And then that led us into a whole journey of working with organizations in the US because in the US at that time, we were right in the peak of the mega festivals in, in North America, which yeah. meant we're also right in the peak of drug deaths in North America. And, and sadly and terribly, quite a lot of young teenagers losing their, and young 20s losing their lives because in America, you the, the promoters can't give out information on safe consumption of drugs or on, on what to do if you see someone in trouble because of the, the RAVAT, which is basically, if, if you are seen to be handing out information, then you are endorsing drug use, which means that you are, therefore, as a promoter, promoting the use of drugs and you thought they could be taken to court and put into prison. So the whole, the whole system is stacked against safety mm. and stacked in favour of bad outcome. And so... We were introduced, and, and I made um, friends with mothers who'd lost their children, and we all agreed that we would take take the show to Vegas, as it were, and go to EDM Biz in Vegas, and, and as best we could recreate the panel that we'd put on in IMS, but in Vegas, mm. knowing that we were in the heartland <laughs> of yeah. where this was the most difficult message to get across. And... Um, we had to do it with not not scripted, but structured carefully, so that every message was right and didn't put people people's businesses in the scrutiny of the police and and lawmakers. And I think at one point, the the the, the shedding of tears live as people described the loss of their sons and daughters and what could have been different for that yeah. was was a, was a huge. And you were looking down at like the front row and just it was just. It was so incredibly traumatic and emotional. Nothing like the trauma and emotion, obviously, of of, of the loss of children. But it was a, such a such a transformational moment, I think, in the scene there because people realised that the law was not doing what it was intended to do. It was creating the opposite. It was creating death. It was creating harm. It wasn't reducing harm, and therefore things needed to change. And, and then what we saw was slow and steady change. And we saw more police acknowledging and more states acknowledging that education was better than prohibition and that allowing some kind of drug testing even if it was was better than none and allowing leaflets to be handed out was better than none yeah. and, and and having water stations was better than none and and then and that was it and thankfully things became more normal and more healthy and um but yeah that was so I think I'm very proud of that one of course that's amazing. Um, so over there now, can, is drug testing allowed now over in the States? It's state by state. So you've got festivals like Shambhala in, in Canada where it's com completely open. You go and test. Um, it's like the role model in many ways. 
and and much like some of some of the, um, the festivals in the UK are, and indeed Spain for that matter. But no, it's not widespread. And I guess at the same time, or not long afterwards, the, the kind of the mega festival environment changed a bit. Anyway, there was there were a lot of festivals, and there were a lot of similar lineups. So the economics and the, the profile of the events changed. But little things started to change, like the the move them to the autumn, not the summer, so it's not as hot in the first place. I think we started to see festivals get smaller. We started to see a, a change in the approach to the states that were holding them because it was better not to have, you know, to be blunt, fleets of ambulances leaving events. It was better for them to go unscathed. So the the law hasn't significantly changed. I think there's been enough impact on the RAVAT now to have softened the blow and to make things easier. Yeah. careful with how I describe it. I'm not quite sure you can interpret easier. But yeah, that landscape has positively changed, um, but it's not positively changed enough compared to the approach in Europe, particularly in countries like Holland where you know, the aim of the game is for everybody to be safe and educated. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I've also seen that you are... Um, um, I don't really know much about this project, so that's why I wanted to ask you. You're also an advisory board member of In a Place of War? Yeah. So can you... I've, I was looking at their Facebook page last night, um, so I, I would like you to explain a little bit more about the project and, and how, you, how you got involved and what kind of work you do with them. Yeah, it's early days, and it was in a way it was sadly curtailed by COVID because it a lot of it requires on being in in the UK to meet with the organisation and to sort of help guide and direct. But as an advisor, um, my role is really to sort of be consulted upon to give guidance on initiatives and ideas. So that you know the main aim of the organisation is to reduce and remove and soften the blow of the impact of war conflict and turmoil particularly on children in places of war and, and war could be you know gang related warfare not just you know, your stereotypical army beats up other army so there is a b- broad t- definition of war into sort of wider conflict and that could be through using music as a tool to teach children so they have a skill to escape from a war torn environment it could be from the donation of instruments to schools it can be through fundraising festivals and so it operates widely around the world from palestine to africa to south america to mexico and beyond and it's you know frustratingly i guess for the organization a lot of its fundraising activity comes from donations and percentages of live events and of course with no live events then it's yeah. it's a lot harder to raise money so we we connected AFEM and In Place of War and Beatport at one point last year during lockdown to sort of mutually assist each other in fundraising. But it's a, you know, it's a fabulously powerful set of initiatives and ambition, which is to use music in, in many of the ways it's supposed to, to sort of inspire, um, to um, remove anxiety and to be a, a positive way out of very negative situations. I'll leave all of the um, information. If maybe you could send me like a bit more info, so I can leave it in the description yeah. Um, yeah. for anybody that, that would like to, you know, help out or, or get involved in any way. Yeah, um, of course. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's very, really, really interesting. I, I worked with Bridges for Music for a while. Yeah. Um, I think you know of Bridges for Music as well. Of course. Um, and I actually had the opportunity to go to Langa in South Africa, which is the township where Bridges for Music were building the music school. And it's a great example um, of 
you know, how music can really bring people together, build bridges and get people out of very complicated and negative situations. So for anybody that is listening, if you ever do have a chance to, you know, get involved with any any types of, of projects like the, like these ones, then I really, really push you to do so. There are so many small things that you can do that can go such a long way. I think I couldn't agree with you more. You know, when you when you, even if you just in, at very high level, just click on a website and watch a video, because we get so cocooned in our reality and what our dangers and difficulties are, and then you you kind of walk a virtual yard in somebody's shoes in a much more difficult environment than we live in where water doesn't flow and bullets rain and bombs drop and then you kind of go okay maybe I can I'll deal with my 15 days in lockdown in Mallorca because I haven't that's not my normal but it's easy it's easy not to know don't feel guilty about not knowing but make sure that you educate yourself into what the extremes are you know when you look at countries like Yemen and you look at the results of war in a country like Yemen don't turn away from a two-minute YouTube video watch it and do something don't do nothing doing nothing is the worst thing and not looking because you know what you'll see is even worse than that to be blunt absolutely I totally agree with you Um, just to finish off would you do a round of quickfire questions (laughs) As you've noticed, it's quite hard for me to do quick fire and short. So, um, I'll, um, I, if, I, if I can, I will. Yeah. You can take as long as you want at the answer. They're quick right. ones. So, what did you have for breakfast this morning? A toast, one with marmite, one with marmalade. One with marmite, one with marmalade. Yeah. <laughs> Bitter pod- and sweet. <laughs> That's quite a random mixture. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a podcast series or book that you're enjoying at the moment? Uh, God, that is hard actually because I'm not. not. I'm, I am. I am trying to get into books this year, but I must confess I haven't opened the first one that I plan to. Although Roman from CAA has recommended one to me, which is about about um, one of the early owners of a major label in the US so that's going to be the first one that I'm going to open this year but I can't I can painfully it's all about music it's not about books and podcasts yet this year <laughs> do you know I also at the beginning of the year I was like, I'm going to set myself a goal and try and read a book a month and it got to the 28th of February and I was like I still have half of my book left so I sat down for five hours on Sunday like determined to finish this book just because it was my goal which I'm glad I did and I did finish it so I do, I do have a Spanish grammar book that I'm making my way through um, but I'm, uh, I'm not going to get dragged into that yet <laughs> you can invite three people over for dinner dead or alive who do you choose? oh that is fantastic isn't it? Um, let me have a think Prince, Gandhi, uh, Prince, Gandhi, and who's my fourth third one going to be? I've got to think of something incredibly funny. And Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry. I was going to say you can invite me around because that sounds like yeah. a great one already. <laughs> <laughs> Prince, Gandhi, and Stephen Fry. There you go. That should be interesting. What would you cook? Uh, uh, chickpea curry for sure straight in Mm, homemade chickpea curry medium spiced Mm, delicious (laughs) what is this is a very difficult question your favourite event to attend it can be any type of event 
Um, from a music industry, I'll have to break this in two, I guess. I think from a music industry perspective, and not just because of uh, our mutual friend, Mr. Turner, but IMS has always been the number one on the team sheet in the calendar every year. And I think we all miss that and can't wait for that to come back. There's something about the timing of it and the location of it and, and how it operates that I think we all have an affinity for and love for if we're there. Um, and then I think the only other event really it makes me sound like a soppy git but like, you know I would love to always be able to to revisit the birth of my kids because that's something you'll never ever get to attend again Aww. and I wish I'd been able to kind of record those more beautifully in my mind when they happened oh that's such a lovely answer what's your favorite sandwich filling <laughs> <laughs> how have we gone from that sandwich <laughs> filling that's quite remarkable <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? Sandwich fillings. Um, I'm, I'm going to go for chilli jam and brie, which I don't really get to eat anymore because I'm predominantly vegan with the odd exception when I'm eating out. So I'm kind of, I'm actually talking about saying that I don't eat, but that's, yeah, bring <laughs> this up the most. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What would a perfect day look like for you? Uh, not getting up too early. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think a, a perfect day would be easing, easing into the day, spending it with family in the outdoors, in the sunshine, and then having a perfect meal at the end of the sunset. That's it. Nothing big, nothing fancy. That would be mine too. Yeah. What is the app that you use the most besides the usual WhatsApp, Facebook, Instagram? Oh, I've looked. That's a wonderful question. You know, I think that's probably it. Um, let me have a look. Oh, yeah, apart from the news and the weather and banking. Um, in, in, yeah, nothing, nothing fun. Probably just BBC News to stay more or less objectively informed. That's it, yeah. Your favourite city to visit? Oh, um, I think that changes a bit from time to time and new ones appear and leave again um, and so I'm, gonna, I'm probably going to have to put two or three up at the same time especially because now that we live in Mallorca then some of those that were previously not favourites to visit become favourites to visit so it's yeah. probably a combo vying for attention of London Barcelona and Berlin good choice and my final question, which I ask everybody on the podcast, because the podcast is called Can You Put Me On Guest List? Do you have... Do you, I'm not going to ask you for guest list because there's nowhere to go, but do you have a guest list rule? I do, which is I'm not going to put people on the guest list unless I'm there. Um, and so that's my rule, is if, if you hit me up and it's to something I'm not going to, then I won't do it. I have to be there. You have to be with me. Otherwise, otherwise it's, you know, no. Bad, there can be bad outcomes that you don't want to have to deal with if you're not there. <laughs> that's a great one. Nobody's actually ever answered that before. So that's a really good rule. I like that one. 
Mark, listen, thank you so much. This has been so, so interesting. The whole point of me starting this podcast when I started it was to learn more about what other people do in the industry. And this has just been absolutely perfect. I've learned so much. And it's also really great to have a good chat with you as well. I know we've crossed paths many of times, but we haven't really ever had like an in-depth uh, conversation. So this has been really, really lovely. And uh, thank you so much for everything. Well, thank you for having me. And sorry if, if at times I went into the rights management uh, rabbit hole, but hopefully I kept it relatively uh, it, relatively normal. It was absolutely perfect. Thank you so much, and uh, I'll see you soon. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you.